and grab a seat. It is wonderful to be with you today, celebrating Mother's Day together, just continuing the journey with Jesus together. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. You might want to grab your notes out of your handout. We are continuing in a series that we're in. It's, a, it's regarding our purposes. And Overlake has three purposes. Last week, we started the series with our first of three purposes. Today, we'll look at the second of three. And, and we actually believe it's not just a, a church purpose, but for all followers of Jesus, these are purposes for which we are created. And as a part of living out the fullest life that Jesus invites us into, we're going to want to embrace these purposes in our lives. So at Overlake, we value Jesus, and we value what Jesus valued. We value what Jesus taught. We value the life that Jesus lived, what he modeled for us. And so we want to look at what Jesus thought was the most important thing, the the most important things for us to get right. And when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment, what is the most important thing, he had a quick answer. He knew exactly what he wanted to say. He said immediately, without any thought, the answer is love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And last week we talked about That was a really common kind of an answer because the Jewish community, the the families that were devout in their worship of God, they would gather together twice a day and they would actually recite that verse together. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 in a passage known as the Shema. And so this was really, really well known, and it was very important that they recited this verse, and they recited it correctly, and they, they had memorized this verse because it was really important to get it right, that, that we are designed, created, and commanded to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And last week, what we did is we unpacked that a little bit and talked about how it's not out of duty It's not that we have to muster up this thought of loving God or this attempt to love God, but more simply, we simply receive his love. We acknowledge and understand how much he loves us, how he's created us in love, pursued us in love through Jesus. We look at the cross on Calvary and we see the perfect picture of God's love uh, poured out for us. And when we receive his love and trust in his love, then the Bible says we become children of God. That's how we become his children. So I put this verse on your outline. James 1.18 says, in his goodness, he chose to make us his own children. You might want to circle that. His own children by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his choice possession. And you could circle that as well. His own children, his choice possession. I bring this up because it's so affirming for us to recognize. This is how God sees us. When we accept his grace, when we trust in his love, we are now his sons and his daughters. Talk about affirmation for our hearts today. Look what it says in Ephesians 1.5. His unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. And this gave him great pleasure. 
See, friends, I want you to understand God's heart. By the way, this is why we make a big deal about orphan care and adoption at Overlake. It's one of the signature ministries that we go after, and it's because this is right at the core of what the gospel is. The good news is that God adopts us into his family. And so, yes, we want to be about that as an expression of his love in this world. But I want you to note that it's through Jesus Christ. It's through our trust in the work that he accomplished on the cross. That's how we are now his sons and his daughters. All of this to say that you might feel unloved. You might feel unimportant. You might feel insecure or disconnected. There are all sorts of mean voices in this world that would run you down. But you can remember that you are a part of God's family. You are a daughter of the Most High. You are a son of the one true king because you've experienced the grace of Jesus Christ. And last week, we wrapped up our time together talking about experiencing his pleasure. You see, look at that last line in Ephesians 1.5. And this gave him great pleasure. You see, God has great pleasure in his children. He takes great delight in his son and in his daughter. He he loves to delight over us, the Bible says, with singing. And that is the reality of God's love poured out over us. And so this greatest commandment to love God, it just begins by us recognizing his love poured out for us. And then we simply respond to him. Now, I want you to understand that when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment, he answered really quickly what the greatest commandment was, the first and best, but it was almost instantly that he added what the second greatest commandment was. Almost like in the same breath that he's saying, love God God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, he moves immediately to, and the second greatest commandment is this. Let's take a look at it. He says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So as you do some some looking then into it, you see that Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6.5 for the greatest commandment. Then he quoted Leviticus 19.18 for the second greatest commandment. So, again, if you're looking at what Jesus values, Jesus values the Scripture. And so there, for some of us, are marching orders to value Scripture, to read it, to know it. Jesus knew it. So he knew what the greatest commandment was from Deuteronomy. He knew what the second greatest was from Leviticus 19.18. And he says, it's love your neighbor as yourself. So this idea of loving those around you as you love yourself, that's how you're to love your neighbor But I love how he wraps it all up. He says, and all the law and the prophets hang on these commandments. So he sums up. This is a big book. There's a lot of stuff in it. But he says, look, you want want to know this. Let me boil it down to two building blocks. Love God and love your neighbor. Right? Here are two Legos to go building with. Right? And he just hands them to us. Love God and love people. These are the two greatest commandments. And I want to take it a step further. It's as if he's saying, you want to know who God's people are. God's people are those who make it a practice of seeking to live out a lifestyle that reflects God's love to him and then shows God's love 
to those around them. Love God, love people. Jesus actually goes so much further, and he says, if you love one another, he says, that's how people are going to know that you are my follower. This is what he says to his disciples. John 13, 34, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, this is one of those commandments that is fairly easy to understand. But the more you start wading into it, you realize that it's a little bit difficult to live out. More than a little bit difficult, if I'm honest. Recently, I joined a group. It's called a Micah group, and they're organized by Fuller Theological Seminary. And the purpose of these groups is to get a bunch of pastors from sort of all different ethnicities. It's to cross gender lines, so it's both male and female. And then there, there are all kinds of uh, denominational lines that are brought together. And the idea is simply this, to create these groups for fellowship, for mutual learning, so that relationships can be formed out of them. And, and the whole idea is it's really hard to live out the command to love one another if you don't even know one another. So just getting together to know one another, uh, the idea is going to foster these, these connections that, that will allow us to love our brothers and our sisters. And there's reading that goes along with it. So there's the, kind of this study. And last week's reading was all about communion. Not communion that we practice here in church where we come to the Lord's table and we take the bread and the cup together, but communion in the sense of communing with. And the reading I found quite frustrating because it challenged and pushed me. And it was about how God desires communion with us and we're created for communion with him. And then it talked about how we are also created for communion with one another, that we had this unbroken communion with God and communion with one another, and then sin came and shattered that communion. And the whole process of redemption is to restore what was originally created for good, and so the work of Christ in our hearts is to restore that communion with God and with one another. And I was so frustrated with this reading because it was so biblical, and it was so compelling, and I told the group, I said, it's as if we don't even know what the goal is. That we run around and we live our lives and we think that the goal is to maybe make more money or to be more secure or have nicer things or, or the goal is to prepare better for an uncertain future or the goal is to learn a lot of stuff and, and maybe achieve a lot of awards or, or the goal is to just be really, really happy. And it's almost as if we're totally missing the whole reason for this thing. It's that we would be in communion with God and communion with one another. And, and how many of us would actually note that, oh, that's what it's all about. So we just miss that. And so we talk about life groups a lot at Overlake, and we talk about how this is one of the main ways in which we have these authentic spiritual relationships with one another, that we develop these friendships where we're known and where we know and where there's true opportunity to love one another like Christ calls us to love one another. And, and we talk about how they're helpful and, and how this is a good idea. 
And at the same time, what we're lacking is the recognition that without these relationships, we are so impoverished in terms of what God desires for our lives. Right? We're, just, we're missing something that is so core and so essential. And, and, and so the challenge then is to me, as well as I bring it to you, I'd love to have you write down a few references and look these verses up later. In Romans 13, 9, Paul writes that all the commandments are summed up in this one rule to love your neighbor as yourself. All the commandments in one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5.14 goes so far as to say the entire law is summed up in this single command. And then James 2.8 likewise confirms if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. And Jesus, of course, is the one that we look to primarily. Like he is the model and he's the one who, who not only voiced it, but he valued it. Nobody loved like Jesus loved. And so Jesus says to us, as I have loved you, I want you to love one another. The way that Jesus entered into the messiness of our lives and loved us in that moment, he says, that's how I want you to love one another. And so we seek to try to do that. And, and as Jesus loved up us in the moments of our victory, in the moments of, of our best day, we want to love one another in, in the moments of their celebration, in the moments of their triumph. And knowing that Jesus loved us in the moments of our stumbling and our sinfulness, we want to recognize Jesus loved us even in that moment. And so we're willing to offer love. And, and we're extending love in, in a moment of someone else's life when they're struggling and when they're hurting. And so we're to love one another. It's a big deal. But I want to talk about it. It's really, really good when we allow ourselves to walk this road. Look what the scripture says here in Psalm 133, verse 1. How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. It's good for us to figure this out, to live together in communion and fellowship with one another. So let me give you a few truths about the power of loving one another in communion. If you're filling in the blanks, the first one is Jesus is present when we come together. It's this reminder that as we gather together in his name, he is right there with us. This is what he says in Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst, where two or three have gathered together. And the reason why I bring this up is because, yes, I absolutely believe that as we gather together in a corporate body, thousands strong, yes, I believe Jesus is present with us as we praise, as we celebrate, as we open his word, see what it is that he has for us. I, I know Jesus is present with us, no doubt in my mind. But, but what he says is where two or three are gathered. He's talking about those spiritual relationships. He's talking about that authentic friendship where we gather together to encourage one another, challenge one another, to love one another in that context. Jesus says, I'm right there. See, some of us, we long to experience the Lord. We long to experience the presence of Christ. And Jesus said, this is how you do it gather together. 
that you gather together for prayer, for care. You're sharing one another's burdens. And in that moment, I am right there. Jesus is present when we gather together. The next truth is this, that healing is available when we pray together. Healing is available when we pray together. James 5.17 says this, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may share with everyone on Facebook how screwed up your friends really are. No, does not say that, right? That's not where this scripture goes. It says confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. I love how he writes this. In other words, there's mutual healing available when you are authentic and vulnerable enough with one another to confess your sins, to share where you're hurting, where you're struggling, where it is that your brokenness manifests itself. And in that moment, as you lift one another up, James says, you may be healed. Both of you, all of you, two or three of you in the presence of Christ can experience healing. And friends, I absolutely believe in a God of healing and a God who moves powerfully in our midst, answering our prayers. So I just, I want to encourage you with that, right? So, so many of us, you can't even remember the last time that you were open with another human, that, that you shared where you're really struggling or where you're really hurting or where the doubt is. And, and the scripture says, look, there's so much emotional and spiritual and even physical healing that's available. We're missing out on because we're not walking this road of loving one another, right? Jesus is present. Healing is available. The next feeling is this. Obedience is practiced when we do life together. Obedience is actually practiced when we live out this commandment of loving one another. Galatians 6.2 says, share each other's burdens, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. We're obeying the law of Christ when we're sharing one another's burdens, shouldering one another's cares and difficulties together. And then, of course, the opposite end of sharing one another's burdens, of helping carry one another's load, the opposite end of the spectrum is isolation, that you would withdraw, that you would not allow anyone to get close to your heart. And this is what the scripture says about that in Proverbs 18.1. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all sound judgment. You see, the scripture says the opposite of life together is isolation. And the one who isolates themselves rages against the wisdom of God. That we seek our own desire when we isolate, but we don't seek a mutuality at all. And so there's this reality that we cannot do this thing in isolation. But we've got to recognize that we were made for communion. We were made to love one another. Loving one another is basically like treating one another as family. Brother, let me encourage you. Sister, let me help you shoulder that. Let me challenge you in this regard. I read a story recently about a man named Sean Alexander. Many of you know uh, of Sean Alexander. He was number 37 for the Seattle Seahawks from the years 2000 to 2007. And the story that I read was from when he was a freshman at the University of Alabama. He wasn't surprised to be sitting the bench as a freshman. Freshmen rarely get to play because the program has so much upperclassmen talent. 
So Sean was not surprised to sit the bench, but he was surprised that his coach called his name in one of Alabama's biggest games of the season, a game against LSU that would decide who would win the Western Division. Uh, Alexander's coach was Gene Stallings at the time, and he called him over and said, Sean, get in the game and don't screw it up. (laughs) So the first carry, Alexander runs for 17 yards into the end zone, one carry, one touchdown, 17 yards. Not a bad way to start your college career. Second time he gets the ball, he runs for 75 yards and a touchdown. Two carries, two touches, 92 yards. The third carry, he runs 53 yards into the end zone for another touchdown. Three carries, three touchdowns, 145 yards. Alabama would go on to win the game, and Sean would finish the game with 291 yards and four touchdowns. Wow, right? Now, all of Alabama's star players, all of the upperclassmen were going crazy after the game. They were dancing. They were, they were just so excited about him, just, just really celebrating him. And they said to him, Sean, you are the man. We are taking you out tonight. You, we are going to get you so drunk, and you're going to have girls all over you. It's going to be the night of your life. You're going to have so much fun. You'll never remember it. And right about that time, a young player named Chad, another freshman on the team, one of Sean's close friends and a member of his small group, breaks into the circle and gives him a hug and says, Sean, this is what your life verse is all about. Why don't you tell these guys what it says? You see, all the guys in Sean's small group had chosen verses that they were going to live by. And Sean chose Psalm 37, 4, partly because his number had always been 37. So Sean looks around at these guys, and he recites this verse, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Sean didn't get drunk that night or any other night, and he didn't have sex that night or any other night until he got married. And now that he's married, he has a daughter named Heaven and a whole bunch of other kids as well. And many of you know that he was named the NFL's most valuable player in 2005. He even made the cover of John Madden's NFL 2007 video game, an honor that so many covet. (laughs) And I want to say that so much of his success was stemmed from the reality of a buddy like Chad and a small group like his that was there for him when he faced serious pressure to compromise. You see, that's the power of family. That's the strength of of authentic spiritual friendships. Obedience is practice when we do life together. The next fill-in is this, that together we build one another up. We build one another up. We, We mutually edify one another in these relationships of love. Proverbs 14, 19 says, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. You might want to circle a few of these phrases, but make every effort would be one of them. It requires effort. It requires intentionality. It requires perseverance. Make every effort, Paul is writing, 
to edify one another, to, to mutually edify, to help one another along on your faith journey, to pray for one another. And I say all these things because the recognition is it's hard to love one another. It's hard to wade in and make these commitments to commune with one another deeply and authentically, transparently. These, these are difficult things to do. It's hard to love someone, especially in a moment where they're not acting particularly lovable. We've talked before about how it's easy to love everybody, but it's the individuals that are annoying and difficult to love. And so th this actually brings me to connect back to last week's message about, about loving God and receiving God's love because, you see, the truth of the matter is this. You cannot manufacture love on your own. You can't do it. The harder the circumstance, the more messy the life, the more difficult it is for you to create in yourself the love required for you to extend. You cannot do it. And so we have to go to the source of love, God by the way, is love. It's not a quality he possesses, it's who he is. God is love. And so we receive his love and, and we allow ourselves to be filled and covered and warmed with his love and then it's out of that expression that we have anything to offer one another. That's why again we go back to how reflexive Jesus makes it. As I have loved you, he says, so you must love one another. And it brings me to a couple of analogies, and I'll share them with you. The first is the analogy of a reflector. You see, a reflector knows it does not create its own light. It's not illuminated from within. It, all it does is reflect the light that is shown upon it. So you can just imagine, and, and we've probably used this analogy before, God's light, like the sun, shines down, and then the reflector simply deflects it off onto someone else. By the way, true story, when I was in high school, I was sitting at the edge of a row in my church, and the sun was streaming in through the stained glass window, and I noticed that it was reflecting off of my watch that I was wearing at the time. It was a swatch, by the way. <laughs> and, and I noticed that it was reflecting the sun, and I spent the next 20 minutes trying to blind my preacher with, <laughs> I was that kid. Reflector. Now, I, I do want to tell you that a reflector is a limited analogy. The reason why it's a limited analogy is because this, the reflector is completely unfazed by the light shining upon it. It's completely non-transformed. The light does not go into the reflector. It simply bounces off the reflector and shines somewhere else. In fact, it's very true to say that the light that is reflected off can easily be blinding and unwelcome. What this looks like perhaps in a Christian's life is that we don't allow ourselves to be changed or transformed by God's love. We simply deflect it off of ourselves. A friend comes to us in need, and we quip a Bible verse at them. We just throw it at them. Or maybe they come to us and they share something that they're deeply struggling with, some tragedy that's in their life that they're wrestling through, and we simply say, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. And they're blinded by that, and it's unhelpful. 
maybe even hurtful in that moment. You see, there's limits to this analogy of a reflector. And I'm thinking a much better analogy would be that of a solar panel. If only I had a solar panel to show you. Thank you. Thank you. This is a solar panel. This is my idea of who we are as Christians. Hi, friends. Got an itch. You see, what a solar panel does is a solar panel receives the energy from the sun. A solar panel takes it in, absorbs it, stores it up, and then is able to use that energy for all sorts of good purposes. And so you and I, we cannot manufacture love for one another on our own, but we can receive the love from the Father. We can absorb God's love. We can soak in it day in and day out, recognizing his love for us, by the way, is agape. Do you remember? Agape means unconditional. It means without limit. The scripture tells us again and again that his love for us is unfailing and everlasting. And so daily we renew ourselves in his love. Daily we absorb his delight in us. We store it up. And then we are able, wherever we go, whoever we are in contact with, we're able to share his love, transformed through our own lives and offered compassionately, offered thoughtfully, offered carefully, because we ourselves have been transformed by his love. Now we want to extend it. Jesus says, as I have loved you, now you must love one another. Isn't that a good analogy? I thought so. I thought so. Now, I'm guessing that most of what we've talked about today is not news to most of you who have been following Jesus for some time. I'm guessing that as we have talked about loving one another, as I have showed you that the Bible says that we are to love one another, or that Jesus says you're to love one another, very, very few of you are saying, now wait a minute, pastor, you're saying I have to love one another? Like, it, it, it's easy to understand. And yet, you would think that because it's so easy for us to understand, all of us would be in life groups today. you think that because it's so easy to understand, none of us would isolate ourselves. We'd all be in deep, rich, authentic spiritual friendships. You'd think that it'd be easy for us to wade into one another's messiness and to bring the grace and the care of Christ to one another, that we would actually be shouldering one another's burdens, that this would be normative for those who follow after Jesus. But unfortunately, many of us are not in life groups. Many of us are not involved in deep spiritual friendships. We do choose to isolate. We don't want to enter into the messiness of another person's life. And so we withdraw. And I really was wrestling with why is this? And the answer that I come to is simply this one word, fear. We're afraid. We're afraid to, to maybe enter in and open up. We're afraid of vulnerability because maybe that'll give another person leverage against us. And we've been wounded in the past. We don't want to be wounded in the future. So we're afraid. 
Maybe we're afraid to enter into another person's messiness because it's uncomfortable, the circumstances they're going through, and their uncomfortable circumstances make us uncomfortable, and we might not know what to say in the moment of uncomfortable uh, reality, and so we just withdraw. We choose to say nothing, engage not at all. See, I think it's fear. And so Overlake, I just want to bring this loving and gracious challenge to each of our hearts today. We must step through our fear. We must not let fear have the final say. We must recognize we've not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-control. See, these are realities that we wrestle with. So I just want to encourage you today. And then one practical expression of this, I've been in ministry for 25 years, and there is one area where the church has been afraid to tread. We have been silent and we have been absent. My friend Kay Warren has recently begun to develop a ministry because of her own journey with her son, Matthew. And it's in the area of those touched by mental illness. Some of you know this story. Matthew Warren was a student in my college group, and he was one of the guys I spent a lot of time with. I found him brilliant and funny, very interesting. We spent some time together, and one of the things about Matthew is he wrestled with mental illness. Ultimately, it cost him his life. I posted a video from Kay on my Facebook wall this week about the ministry that she's seeking to develop in her, out of her church, Saddleback. But one of the things that God is prompting us to do as a church is to explore appropriate ways in which we as a church together might find to extend God's love, care, and support to those families touched by mental illness. Right now, what I want to do is introduce you to a friend of mine named Tracy, I really want you to get a chance to hear her story. So would you please give a warm Overlake welcome to my friend, Tracy. Come on up, Tracy. Good morning. Well, there's a quote I like that says, everybody you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about, so be kind. In my family's case, that battle is mental illness. At some point in our lives, one or more of us have experienced the following mental health challenges. Major depression, generalized anxiety disorder, dysthymia, various phobias, panic attacks, social anxiety disorder, anorexia, bulimia, obsessive compulsive disorder, attention deficit disorder, hyperactivity, post-traumatic stress disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, borderline schizophrenia, delusions, disassociation, and brief psychotic episodes. My mental health journey started at the age of three. Debilitating night terrors had me convinced that I was going to be attacked by some faceless man in my sleep. The terrors were relentless and accompanied by insomnia, migraines, and until I was 12 years old, nightly bedwetting. As I got older, I got trapped in obsessive thinking and compulsive actions in desperate attempts to feel safe at night. By the time I reached college, I also struggled with depression, anxiety, and a season of suicidal ideation as a result of my pain. Later, Panic attacks and PTSD were added to my list. 
But strangely, if you met me then, you'd never have known I was dealing with any of this. I was what is referred to as high functioning. I never looked or acted in any way like I experienced mental health challenges. I got straight A's in school and gave my life to Christ in college. I got married and raised two wonderful children. I held good jobs and I got promotions and I even started my own nonprofit. The only place my distress seemed to show itself was in my marriages. My first two husbands left me. The first after nine years, the second after 15. And I secretly worried that God too would soon be on his way out the door. After all, what kind of a witness was I for him? if I was in such mental and emotional pain all the time. To make things even harder, my family was struggling with mental health issues of their own, which expressed themselves through multiple suicide attempts, struggles with drug and alcohol addiction, several long-term stays in hospital, psychiatric, and treatment facilities, and lots of codependency, though that was mostly on my part. That's because with every new diagnosis, I worked that much harder to show my hurting family that none of their issues changed how much I loved them or how valuable they were to me or the world. They knew they could count on me to be there in the midst of their suffering, fiercely fighting for their wounded minds and hearts and focusing on their pain helped keep me from going over the edge myself. My family needed me, and I couldn't let them down. Where was God in all this? Well, growing up, I didn't know anything about God. That is, until a crisis pregnancy in college. I had an abortion and fell into total despair. My non-Christian boyfriend started reading me the Psalms, something his mom had done for him when he was upset as a little boy. And hearing the Psalms was like coming home, only to a home I'd never known before. I wanted to give my life to this God and did. And I desperately hoped he would heal my mental and wellness. But he didn't. And I soon found myself returning to familiar patterns and thoughts. I felt so much shame, like a complete spiritual failure. And sadly, many of the Christians I knew only reinforced this feeling. They wanted me to have more faith or be healed by their prayers or have the demons of fear and doubt cast out of me once and for all. After all, everyone knew real Christians weren't plagued by terror, depression, and anxiety like I was. I tried everything to rid myself of my disorders and night terrors even traveling across the country to a faith healer, but nothing seemed to cure me. I finally ran out of hope for a miracle. And to my great surprise, that turned out to be the best gift of all. Because I realized that I had to accept myself just as I was. And in doing so, God gave me the courage to get the help I desperately needed. I started seeing a therapist, taking medication, and building up my mental and emotional strength and resiliency. I even met other Christians I deeply respected who were facing their own mental health issues, and that helped me not feel so alone in mine. 
My mental health challenges were no longer something I had to get over, but something I was learning to live well with. I finally believed that I was truly God's beloved daughter, that I belonged in his kingdom, no differently than if I had cancer or diabetes. But unfortunately, not everyone in the church shares this vision. While statistics show a majority of those struggling with mental health issues turn to church leaders for help, all too often they are met with silence and shame, just like I was with the Christians I met in college. And that's why I'm standing here today sharing my story with you. If you suffer from mental and emotional unwellness, I believe with all my heart that you too are God's beloved child who belongs, that you too can learn to accept yourself because you are already deeply loved and accepted. We don't have to perform for God or run away from him. We can embrace ourselves in the midst of our mental health difficulties as believers who belong. I believe this is what I was made for, to help you, the suffering, break free from the stigma and shame of mental illness, to help you believe in your own belonging and belovedness. God is using my journey in some beautiful ways at Overlake. Not only have I been given this amazing opportunity to share with you today, but I'm also part of a team that is working to provide love and support to anyone here who is walking through mental health challenges so you don't feel so alone. We want to end the stigma and stop the silence that has gone on too long in the church. So today, we recognize and honor the resiliency, courage, and strength those of you who suffer demonstrate each and every day simply by getting up and hoping for a way out of your darkness and isolation because none of us should suffer in silence. Thank you for letting me share with you today. Last service after Tracy shared, there were so many folks who came up and just identified with the story that she shared. In fact, you need to know this if you don't already, that statistics show one in four families are touched by mental illness. One in four families are impacted by mental illness. And so what this means is this is not only a way that we can learn how to love one another within our context as a church, but it's an incredible way for us to begin to care for our community and to bless our city. One in four families are touched by mental illness. And so what I want to say today is this. Church, we acknowledge that we have been silent about the pain and suffering of mental health difficulties, and we have neglected your suffering the suffering in our community for far too long. For that, we profoundly apologize. Our silence said that we did not care, but we do care deeply. We are in the process of ending the silence, and we will walk through this together at Overlake Christian Church with God's grace and hope 
Right now, we are in the planning and the praying mode, but this fall, our prayer is to be able to wade into support and care for families touched by mental illness. So stay tuned. We're going to continue to roll out information as we have it, and, and please be joining us in prayer for this. And what I want to do as I close is I simply want to draw our minds back to our analogies. Think about sort of how it is that you live. Are you a reflector or are you a solar panel? The idea is that we need to recognize our inadequacy and our own strength and power. But the reality is that in God's love, we have all that we need to share love and care and support to those that he brings. Again, remember the words of Jesus. As I have loved you, so you love one another. And so that means that in your best day, when things were great and you were close with God and everything was clicking into place, Jesus loved you. In those moments, you love one another. But in your worst day, when you were wrestling with the same sin again and again, or you're struggling with the same thing, the default and, and the pattern of your thinking again and again that was dark and, and hopeless, in that moment, Jesus loved you. And so in that moment for another, you're to love them. You remember that in the moment of your joy, in the moment of your gladness, Jesus loved you, and so you can celebrate that in another's life. But in the moment of sadness, in the moment of pain, Jesus loved you there. And so we're to love others in that place as well. Overlake, I just want to encourage you. You're the greatest church that I have ever been a part of. You do live out of this posture of loving God and of loving one another. But I also declare that there are still great distances to go. So let's go there together with Jesus. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes and let's pray. Jesus, we simply acknowledge that we cannot do this without you. We do not have the ability to love as you loved unless you provide that for us. And so today, we just want to say thank you. Thank you that you have loved us. Thank you that you have pursued us, that you have demonstrated your love so clearly, even to the point of laying down your life on a cross for us. For all of these things, we simply want to say thank you. And we receive your love in this moment right now. And we ask that you would fill us up, that like a solar panel, we might just receive the warmth and the energy of your love. We might be filled and fueled by it so that as we leave this place and as we go out into our lives this week, into our communities and our parishes, into our classrooms and our workplaces, that you would provide the strength that we need to truly love to truly care, and to truly share one another's burdens. We want to live out your command as you have loved us. We want to love one another. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Mm -hmm.